If you've ever felt isolated, confused, or overwhelmed by midlife changes, you're not alone. Welcome to Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. I'm so happy you're here. I'm the author of Me, Myself, and I, a midlife coach and public speaker. My mission is to create deeper conversations with dynamic people from all walks of life about how midlife's completely shifted who they thought they were and ultimately how they've come to see themselves again. When it comes to navigating the funky junk of midlife identity loss and the unnamed grief that goes along with it, it's time for straight talk. Get ready for real stories, real connection, and real hope accompanied by a little bit of humor and a whole lot of love. You're now part of Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. Bill Persky is a five-time Emmy Award-winning writer, director, and producer for such shows as The Dick Van Dyke Show, That Girl, Sid Caesar, and Kate and Alley. He is a guest lecturer at the New York University Film School and Yale University and teaches comedy writing at the New York Film Academy and the University of New Haven. He is what I consider Hollywood royalty and has amazing stories to share. It is my esteemed honor to introduce my guest on Identity Talk, Bill Persky. At 88, I have a lot of fists. So um, I was born in New Haven, Connecticut at the Yale University Hospital, which is as close as I ever got to that. Uh, and uh, it was during the Depression, which was a hard time for everybody. So we moved around a lot and lived with a lot of relatives. And we lived in places where when the rent was due, in the middle of the night, you'd go to sleep in one bed and the next morning you'd be in a whole other place before the landlord came. And my father was, uh, well, he was a salesman, basically. And uh, he kept us alive during that time by just going out, putting a thing up on the back of his truck, of his car, and selling cheap items to guys who had jobs at factories or wherever it was. Eventually, he owned his own company. And I lived in... uh, Let's see, I lived in New Haven. I lived in East Orange, New Jersey. I lived in Jacksonville, Florida. I lived in Hot Springs, Arkansas, where I actually went to the same grammar school that that Bill Clinton did. And at at one time in a a fundraiser, come on up, meet the president. And the only reason I went, went was I wanted to see what he'd do when I said I went to Ramble Street School. So politicians have a way of oozing their way. They see you and then they're off. You know what I mean? They're just like vipers. Anyway, he was going through this huge crowd of people and he got to me and I said, I went to Ramble Street School. And he stopped and he said, no stuff. I said, yeah. He said, all right. And then he left. I I just loved that moment. My father became an auctioneer, a not strange kind of auctioneer. They they actually took advantage of what people thought of auctioneers, that they were selling stuff that they had no interest in other than a commission. But my father, there was a form of auction that took place in Atlantic City, where I 
grew most of my life. I went to high school there. And it was built on fantasy. They owned everything that they sold. But one of the great things that people didn't trust them. And one of the things that the auctioneers did was halfway through getting them ready for the sale of diamonds, which is what their business was. And this whole pre-sale they were doing was about advertising this sale. Then somebody halfway through would just say, oh, okay, uh, somebody here is interested in seeing some of the diamonds. It's a little ahead of time. And they bring them out and then, oh, really? Well, it's a little unusual, but someone here wants to bid on one of the, and won't be here for the big sale. So then they have this whole bullshit thing. People's confidence was they hold up an empty box or a box, pretty box. And he'd say, you know, you people don't trust me and uh, I'm going to prove it to you. I have an empty box here. What will you give me for it? And they start bidding like crazy. And he's constantly keeps saying it's an empty box, empty box. And then they, he takes the money from whoever bought it and says, I hope the only empty box you have to buy is a long time from now. What do you expect to be in here? He said, nothing. Okay. And then they open it. It's empty. And the whole audience goes, oh, my God, it's empty. After that, he could have sold them anything in the world. So anyway... I lived a lot of places. I went to 14 schools before I got to high school. And my sister went to 26. Wow. It was not a very, very solid uh, childhood. With those contexts of your life, what was it that you dreamed about as a kid? Like what? Not moving. (laughs) Not moving? So stability? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was always just... I wanted to be someplace that I knew I could depend on. And it it never happened until I got to high school in in Atlantic City. How did that change things for you? Well, it gave me a base to build friendships on that I knew were going to be there. I felt allowed to just take my time developing those friendships instead of doing it overnight so that I had somebody there who kind of I could count on. But uh, once we settled down, it was a whole different world. There was there was a substance to my life and to, to my family's life. I mean, it was always moving. And uh, it created a lot of stress on my mother in particular. She was the one who had to face the landlord when she didn't have the, the money because my father would be out on the road. It seems like having a basis for building trust, did that start to give you a sense of reliability in who you were, would you say? No, the the problem is my parents created a feeling in me, mostly my mother, out of her anxiety, overprotectiveness. Like when I was five years old, we were living in Jacksonville Beach, Florida, where my father was working in a gallery. And I had a little suit and I walked, took a walk on the boardwalk. And I sat down on a bench, kind of like Forrest Gump and was talking <laughs> to people. And uh, I was having a great time. And when I got back, there was panic. Everyone assumed I was dead. 
or wherever. That happened to me a number of times. I, we were living with my grandparents in, in uh, New Haven again. I was going to this school that was about in New York. I live on 67th Street East. And the school was like at the plaza, which is at 58th Street and Fifth Avenue. And I was what? I was seven, six or seven. And there was a kid who worked for my grandfather. Worked. He, my grandfather had a little grocery store, and this young kid, Walter, took care of things, delivered stuff. And Walter was responsible for bringing me home. We would meet outside this door, and Walter would take me home. One day we went to the fire department, and they left me off at a different door. So Walter didn't show up there, you know. And I just said, well, I guess I better walk home. Never with a moment of concern or panic or whatever. By the time I get home, there was a police car there. My mother was on the side. It was like Hiroshima. I mean, you know, the, the panic. And everybody, oh, my God, oh, my God. You can't. Certainly it created a problem for them. But the thing you do with a kid is you say, well, I guess we don't have to worry about you, do we? You know how to take care of yourself. But don't just go off like that because we don't know where you are. But boy, it's sure good to know you. No, I got the exact different message that I thought I was okay, but apparently I wasn't. And the final chapter in that was we moved to Newark, New Jersey. And I started in kindergarten and my mother was going to pick me up lunchtime to take me home. And again, they did something that I was at a different door. So I stood there and I just said, oh, I better go home now. And I, there was a grocery store across the street. And I walked in. I said, I'm lost. I just moved here. I live on a street. That the, and the guy walked me home. My mother was panicked. I mean, it was chaos. That kind of nailed down the lid on my coffin of trusting my own sense of reality. I thought I was fine, but my mother or my parents who were grown up, they didn't think I was fine. So I obviously couldn't trust my perception of things. And after lunch, I started to cry and threw up and would not go back to school. They just took away from me the sense that I knew what I was when I was safe. So for everybody who's listening, I'm talking to Bill Persky. And I read somewhere that your feelings or relationship or perceptions of your mother is what contributed to writing these amazing roles about and related to strong women. And we can talk about it, but the shows you were uh, responsible for and involved with include that girl course the dick van dyke show prior to that and also kate and ally so um i want to definitely talk about those shows in relationship to what it solidified it also gave you something to look into maybe i have i've been married for the third time which is now 25 years but my relationships with women i i really transferred that power that my mother had that I couldn't trust my own. I mean, if I saw something some way or whatever, and they didn't, I'd say, well, maybe I'm not right. You know, it shook 
I mean, I would do these amazing things. And if I didn't get the endorsement from the woman I was with, it would shake me. It would really matter. And then I would try to do something even better and even better. And I, I happened, I had what I call the Anastasia complex where women are concerned. I always looked for the princess Anastasia and I turned them into Albert Anastasia, who was the head of the mafia and one of the great killers of, of the century. I mean, I made them, I gave power that was mine because I just wanted, I just didn't trust. I mean, it wasn't like it crippled me. So when do you think that shifted? Did it shift? Yeah, oh yeah. When I married Joanna, which is 25 years ago, uh, I had gone through a number of traumatic situations and I came out alive and said, well, wait a minute. I did that by myself. I mean, it's a horrible thing that at 40 or 50 to start trusting your own perception of things, you know? I think that's the time when it happens though. I mean, that's what my book, Me, My Selfie and I Uh is all about. I call it a conversation about lost identity, grief, and seeing who you are. And what that means is that's the time when you start to have these conversations with yourself about who you are in the world and the things that you no longer understand to be true about yourself. There's this whole measure of grief and time where you're looking into ideas about who you're going to be. Uh, It's the time when you start to take stock of everything and look inside yourself. And the I... EYE is how you come to see yourself again. Uh-huh. So I think midlife is the time when those pillars fall, the things that define us. I guess depending on how much damage had been done along the way, you know. Right. I mean, I know some people who never doubted themselves, you know, and they say, oh, okay, then what else was their problem? Everybody gets a little something. No one gets out, you know, get out of jail free card, their parent. Right. You know, I, I look. I looked at my life. Said, "Gee, I'd love to have so and so's confidence. I'd love to be this like him." And it was like I was turning together an all-American version of myself, the best quality of everybody. And I said, "It was kind of like watching a shark fin and saying, oh, isn't that graceful? That's wonderful.' When you pick it up, and it's the worst thing. Everybody has that." ugly shark going for them you can't pick a part of somebody you can admire it or whatever you can't say i want that because that got there through some very involved reasons you know and you have to pick up the whole shark not just pieces so even when you started doing some of the entertainment industry stuff and writing and asserting your position and voice and authority. Dick Van Dyke, uh, 1961 through 1966, which I think is interesting because how is it that when you're working around a bunch of talented artists and people that need adoration and you're trying to find your own voice and did you have imposter syndrome or did you feel like you belong there? And how did Hollywood influence all that? I had the most fortunate mentor that anyone could ever have that's Carl Reiner and uh, I mean I always thought of Carl as my father but he was only nine years older than I was and and there were a couple of men in my life like that 
And the common thread was they had served in World War II. Interesting. And, and they had a, a sense of, of maturity or responsibility or just a, a solidity about themselves that you felt like a kid around them, even though they're, they're not that much older. And so Carl is probably one of the best human beings that exists on the planet. He's honorable, he's generous, he's loving. He doesn't stand bullshit for a second. Right. And, uh, and he's encouraging, he's supportive, you know? So when I was lucky enough, I had a partner at the time, when we were lucky enough to get, at that time back in Hollywood you, you, or in television, you would write a sample script and hopefully get it to somebody who worked on the show, which doesn't exist for a long time now because people got sued. Well, they took that idea. So everybody got very protected. George Shapiro was my agent and he's, uh, he's Jerry Seinfeld's manager. He discovered he's his, he's adorable and he's a killer, you know, that's funny you said that about Seinfeld because I was thinking when I was trying to imagine the Dick Van Dyke show. I mean, to me, that's kind of like the original Seinfeldish sort of concept. It feels like so much of the comedy situation was it just dealt with honesty, you know? Right. When, when we would have us looking for a script, say, "Well, what happened to you recently?" and then that would become the show. It was also interesting. It was filmed before a live studio audience. There was a lot of them. Yeah, Lucy was done that way. Almost everything was done that way because it was cheaper. And also the people who had the shows had been performers who had worked in front of audiences and they benefited. As that went on, you had a lot of people who never worked and and were in front of audiences and it it, there was no reason for them to be. So, you know, George got a script, a sample script that Sam and I had written, got it to Carl, and he said, the story is stupid, but I like the writing. So I'll have a meeting. We walked in, and the first idea that we presented was right out of my own life, where when my first daughter was born thought they had confused the babies because there was another family with the same name and we kept getting their flowers and their stuff. And I said, well, how do, you, how do we know we have the right kid? And it was before DNA or whatever. So I told Carl, I said, uh, this happened to me and if it happened, to them, and he just loved it. It turned out to be a landmark show and uh, changed a lot of things. It was the first, because the only way clarify that they had the right child was that the kid parents had to be of another ethnicity (laughs) it was back in 1962 and the civil rights movement was just getting started and Carl is a very liberal person he said let's make them black the network said, oh, no, 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 you can't do that. The world is not ready for a white couple to make fun of a black couple. 
And Carl said, no, you have it wrong. It's the black couple that's making fun of the white couple. <laughs> and I said, we'll never be ready for that. So anyway, right. he stood his ground and was going to go to the pavilion. And I thought, the network wasn't going to let us do it. And Carl said, I'm going to go to the newspapers. I'll, you know, I'll not do the show ever again. Well, so they finally let us do it. And it was in front of an audience. When the other couple... I mean, Dick insisted that they come over and bring the, their baby and he'd give them the baby that we have, you know, he's just gonna, and when he opened the door and uh, the guy who played the part was uh, Greg Morris, who went on to be on Mission Impossible, a lot of shows. And when they, he and his wife walked through the door, there was dead silence which seemed Mm. like it went on forever. But it was long enough for Carl, who was standing next to me, to say, oh, shit. (laughs) And then a laughter started, and it went on for 20 minutes. Wow. We had to go back each time and start again and start again. And every time it happened, they found it equally hilarious. We we just, we'd get through them coming in, and we'd get to the next line. And after that, they would go crazy. It was just an amazing thing. So do you think the role of comedy in the 60s was super important, given how much was changing between race and gender and, you know, all the stuff that was going on? The role in comedy has always been there. It's a way of easing your way into a a situation, you know. I just wrote a piece. I'm... part of a organization at Sloan Kettering Cancer Hospital that has a writing program for cancer patients. It's called Visible Ink. Over the years, I've had about 20 different writers. It's an amazing, you know, it's one of my favorite things. I'd love to be know. part of that if there's any way I can contribute oh, really? and help out. Are you a survivor? Or? I have plenty of people in my family who are. Oh. I'll look. Where do you live? I'm in Portland, Oregon, and I actually am in a creative writing MFA program so I can teach and I want to work with people who are underserved or need voice. Uh So I teach free online writing classes. And, you know, my mission is to connect with people who need to share their stories. It's really been one of the more important things I feel in my life. In fact, they, they, I've, spoken on a number of occasions to the whole group of how to find the humor in anything. Right. I managed to, in, you know, a couple of points where they said, well, what what about the fact that I can't speak with them, I can't throw? So I said, just look at them and say, ain't cancer a bitch. Right. (laughs) And she said, oh, I like that. They're doing a special thing with about the virus from cancer patients who comparing or, you know, considering their experience and what it was like and what the virus must be like. And I wrote the end of it. I just said, I have always felt that there is nothing that you can't make funny. Did you have a lot of fun working on the Dick Van Dyke show? Oh, my God. It was a gift. It was just a gift that keeps giving. Because, I mean, the fact that to be a writer on the Dick Van Dyke show, I would go to a party in Hollywood with people. 
and just sit there and wait till someone said, and what do you do? And I said, I write the Dick Van Dyke show. And it was like the old D.F. Hutton commercial. Everything stopped. Yeah. And the whole, whole party came to me to ask about He Van just Dyke. seems like he would be such an interesting guy. Well, he was very screwed up. He was an alcoholic and, you know, really troubled guy. But uh, he was always delightful. He was delightful, but not necessarily relating to you. you know, he mm. was relating around you rather than to you. But over the years, he 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 kind of grew up, and and he's been terrific since. I I have not been in regular contact with him, but when I am, it's always. In fact, now he is more solicitous of me and appreciative of me than he was when I was doing the show. That takes time sometimes to grow up and, you know, hopefully something not everybody does. So it's great that some people can and do. And it didn't seem like you had a lot of time from the Dick Van Dyke show. It seemed like that girl started right after it, where you were in development while you were working on the Dick Van Dyke show, because it seems like they, one ended, one started. People were online waiting for my partner and me to write something for I mean, the Van Dyke show was such a, a crown in anyone's career. And here I was in my 30s, you know. So people were just waiting. Marlo, her father, Danny, actually was one of the partners on the Dick Van Dyke show. And uh, so I had seen her around sometime, but I didn't really know her. And she, ABC wanted to do a show with her. And she said, well, went and said, I want to do a show, and it's about an independent girl. And they said, oh, well, you can't do that yet. You, know, you have to have, you have to be someone's daughter, or you have to be working for somebody. It can't be just about you. And she said, well, Bill Persky and Sam Denoff are going to write it. And they said, oh, okay. So <laughs> she came, and she said, uh, I sold this show. I don't know what the show is, but... I, the only reason they they wanted to do a show with me, but the thing that really sold it is I said that I had you to write the pilot. The funny thing is my partner, Sam, was a misogynist. He, he and Marlowe hated each other from day one. But I really was a feminist before there was a, a, a name for it. And mostly it's about my sister who actually is what the title that girl came from the original title was miss independence which is what danny called marlo and i said you know that sounds like she won a beauty contest and i said i think the way my parents related to my sister i think says there's something special about that girl because my sister would do things and my mother or father would say, can you believe what that girl is doing now? (laughs) She was always this powerful force. I mean, I remember being young, really young. My, my mom watched it. My grandmother watched it. So I remember those images of a young independent girl, the opening scenes. And, you know, I can look at now and appreciate that. That was definitely one of the first sitcoms to focus on a single oh, woman. No question. 
no question. And, yeah, and how amazing that is. Yeah, well, Marlo is a, a force of nature. She's really, I re always refer to her as the velvet steamroller. She very gently will get her way and flatten any opposition. And she and I had a really great relationship, still do. And she and my partner, they couldn't, they wouldn't, they wouldn't talk to one another. And so how did the scenes show up in a way that were honest and true and creating something of a cultural conversation that you, you know, you were creating that. I mean, you probably can't even see it at the time, but you were creating that. Well, it was the, it was the effort to do that, you know. Marlo and I worked very much sympathetic. Cam would, you know, be an opposition voice, which made us better because we had to satisfy him in a way. But it was Marlo's show. She owned it. She was, you know, it was her company and all that. And uh, there were aspects of her that we had to introduce the audience to on, on the pilot to show how different people viewed her and who she was. So the opening was, uh, it was in a restaurant and a, a guy said to the busboy, uh, who's my waitress? And that girl, and she had her hat falling. And then it was in her agent's office. And he said, uh, no, she'll be, I know it's a small part, but believe me, she'll make it big. You got to trust me. That girl is going to be a star. And there was a very glamorous picture of her. And then it was her parents talking to her on the phone about actually what was happening in the show. And he said, can you believe it? She's now going to, nothing's going to stop that girl. And there was a picture of her with her college cap and gown. And it was done to set up a, a, uh, a character so that you knew that she was multifaceted. And everybody loved it. And I said, yeah, well, you can't do that every week. And we did <laughs> every week. That was the signature uh, of the show. How do you know how to develop a character or a plot? Like, that's something that's interesting to me. I watch some shows, like I just rewatched Ally McBeal, because of course we're all in quarantine. And I went back to Ally McBeal and it's interesting to see how they try to develop some of the story arcs and the characters and who they bring in and who they leave out. So how do you make some of those decisions? Well, first of all, you make the decisions on who's working. I mean, who's who's your strong suit? You always play to your strong suit. Uh, but then there are ancillary people who are also good. So you'll do a story about them. I mean, like on the Van Dyke show, we did stories about Rosemarie. And we did a great story about Maury Amsterdam, who had never had a bar mitzvah. So <laughs> we did a bar mitzvah for him. Stars... You know their stars. I mean, it's like, that's why I can't stand when they talk about the Kardashians. And, and I mean, get out of here. Get out of here. Written a number of pieces about it, about being a star. And I, I, I've done a lecture series of things, and it was always one of my favorite things to talk about. I said, stars are something you look up at, and they twinkle not something you look down on. 
when you had people in your life like Peter Sellers and Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly and Cary Grant, class and sophistication, and maybe that's just how I perceive it. Uh, first time I ever saw Cary Grant was on the lot at, at Universal. I was there to have a meeting and I walked out and there was Cary Grant. He tripped and it was the most graceful thing. Oh my goodness. I mean, there was no, no possibility. I mean, they, but they, no stars are like that. Now there's a lot of screaming. I was just going to ask you, how do you look at Hollywood now and see what's going on and the caliber of paparazzi and fame and what it's built on compared to what it was? It started out as a, uh, a business. It became, it was show business. But the show started to get lost and the business became more important. I mean, not that people who are stars today aren't, aren't good, but too many people are, are labeled as stars. You have to do something, you know? I remember when uh, Jersey Shore was on and what's her name? Smoochie, Poochie, whatever. Big star. But exposure makes people stars now. Who would you consider today's Cary Grant or Gene Kelly or Grace Kelly? Like, who would you imagine today lives up? Meryl Streep? Oh, yeah. Well, she's, you know, she transcends. She became a star because of how great her acting was. You know, it right. wasn't about her persona as much. As right, right. God, I don't know. There are so many almosts, but there was, there's nothing like what they were then they built a world and now the stars populate that world they didn't make it Tom Hanks is is Jimmy Stewart and you know he's very special yeah he's 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 a person his stardom is about his work you don't see him a lot of club stuff or anything like that Brad Pitt yeah, Brad Pitt is 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 that way. Uh, Catherine Zeta Jones. Yeah, Goldie Hawn was that. Goldie would. Goldie Hawn, yes. I gave Goldie her first job. She came in to read for something that she was totally wrong for. But the minute she walked in the room, you just knew she did the reading, and I said, you know, you're not right for this part, but you're perfect for her best friend. She said, well, I read the script. She didn't have a best friend. I said, not until you walked. <laughs> and then the same thing happened. I was casting a show and this young girl came in and she had just gotten to Hollywood. She read for me. And I said to her, uh, you can have this part. She said, Oh my God, I just got here. And I said, but you shouldn't take it. And she said, Why? I said, because you're going to be so big that this will hold you back. She said, no, it's my first. I said, I'll tell you what. You talk to your agent, tell him what I said. It was on a Friday. And I said, on a Monday, if you still want this part, you got it. And on Monday, she said, well, I guess, you know, my agent thought about what you said. And so I guess I'll take a chance. And that was Farrah Fawcett. She walked in the room. I mean, you <laughs> just knew. It was also true of Jerry. I was doing a pilot and, and the guy 
who was the star of it, didn't work out the second day. So he had to recast immediately. And he was George's client. And he came in and he read, and I said, George, don't let him even think of doing this. I said, he's so much better than this. He just know. I mean, you, you, there's no denying it when you see a star. You don't have to know they're a star. You'll very quickly understand that they're a star. You know, it's like Gene Kelly. I mean, Fred Astaire I was writing a pilot for him. He wanted to do a television series. And it was about him. He owned a record company and he wanted to do it about this song called Think Pretty. He went to his office and he put the record on and he just started to just couldn't stop himself. And then he got up, sat in a chair, spun around it, grabbed, grabbed the coat rack, bent it. And you just looked and you were mesmerized. What did people of that era, the Fred Astaire's, the Cary Grants, what did they teach you or how did they inspire you when you look back now? Well, the main thing was you want to be accepted by them. It wasn't an unknown. You knew you were in the presence of greatness. And so you didn't just casually say anything. You know, you... you, you regarded who you were talking to. I wrote the reunion show for Sid Caesar, Emma Jean Coca, Carl Reiner, and Howie Morris. And I did it with, it was Carl writing it and, and Mel Brooks and Sid. You want to say, how about this in front of that group? Not easy to do. I remember the moment that I was accepted and we were doing a sketch about one of his characters who was Progress Hornsby, who was this out of consciousness, out of the universe jazz musician. And he did talk and he just never said anything that made any sense, but he did it in such a way that it was wonderful. And he was talking about, he said, I just met a woman and finally... I, I think that progress is going to get married because she is very special. She's funny, did it? And uh, and then I said, and she's of the same religion of me, strawberry. That's it. <laughs> That's it. Strawberry. Yeah, it's funny. It was also a joke that saved my life. We had a, a our first job on a show was uh, the uh, Steve Allen show when it moved to Los Angeles from New York. Sam and I had jobs at the WNW radio in New York and very solid. You know, I was making $90 a week as the assistant program director. George, who was, you know, the hand grenade in my life, who went in and blew things up, saying, this guy's going to fix it. And uh, he became the leading agent on the Steve Allen show. And he said, I'll have you in Hollywood in six months. And he did. But the deal that we got was we each got $500 a week. And we were guaranteed three weeks. They liked us. They'd pick us up for another three weeks. 
And if they liked us, then they'd pick us up for another three weeks. I mean, we were on tinterhooks, and I had to give up my job. My wife was pregnant, and you had to say to yourself, well, this is it. I mean, I'm not going to get an opportunity that they're going to pay me a million dollars to come out there. you got to take a chance. So we did, and we were coming up on the, on the third uh, week. And so far, we done okay, but nothing that would have us stand out, you know. And we were doing a sketch. The big popular show then was a, a medical show called Ben Casey. The opening of the show was Dr. Zorba, who was the head of the hospital, Sam Jaffe, who was this great old Yiddish actor who also was Gunga Din out of nowhere. But he had <laughs> hair like mine, but better. And he had an accent. And the opening of the show was him standing at a blackboard with a pointer. And on it were chalk figures. And he'd say, this is the sign for man. This is the sign for woman. This is praise, this is death, and this is infinity. And that would be so We did this thing, and the guy playing Dr. Zor was a great mimic by the name of Joey Foreman. And uh, he was there, and we had the blackboard, and he said, This is the sign for man, this is the sign for woman, this is the sign for praise. This is a sign for death. And this is a pussycat. And a little stick thing. <laughs> well, Steve Allen picked us up from that joke. The entire series. One, one joke. And the great thing about it was the show was canceled two weeks later. And they had to pay us for 26 weeks, which allowed me to stay there. So how did parenthood, because, you know, you're doing your career and you're juggling being a writer and, you know, how did parenthood come into play and then how did it impact you? I think it's interesting you had daughters, including oh, yeah. a set of twins. And I have, uh, I have one, two, three, four. I have six almost daughters. I mean, literally, there, there's one who was the daughter of a woman I went with and it was a not a happy relationship, but the kid was so, she was nine years old and her father had, you know, been abusive and all, all the wrong things. After about a month, she really turned to me and, and trusted me. And I stayed in that relationship for four years. Nothing to be proud of. I mean, it's pretty neurotic, but... I stayed there for her so that she knew that you could trust a man. And now she's 42 and I'm her father. Parenthood give you different insights into yourself and who you were and how to be a man, be a father? I think I was automatically a father because I knew what I would have liked to have had as a father. My father was a total fraud as far as I was concerned. He, you know, he failed. It's almost like, well, whatever came up, I figured, what would he do when I did 
the opposite. Yeah. I enjoyed the role I, uh, of being a father. It felt very comfortable to me because I was playful and I could create worlds for the kids and stuff. I enjoyed being a father. My first daughter was so beautiful and so special, Dana. And my, my wife wanted to be special. And especially relationship to me, she had graduated from college Phi Beta Kappa, and I had graduated on suspension, you know. <laughs> she was really smart and she was awesome. But what happened is uh, I became the star that she thought she was going to be. So there was a lot of resentment there. And she imposed herself on my career in embarrassing ways sometimes. I just stood by Dana. I mean, in the beginning, she taught Dana could read when she was two years old, which made her mother special. That's incredible. Made her special. She was already beautiful and charming and all, but she kept being pushed to be special, which made her mother special. And then when she was five, we had twins, and that was special. And so mm-hmm. her mother dropped Dana. I mean, just she didn't matter anymore. So I had to pick up the uh, slack there. And mm-hmm. in fact, after we got divorced, when Dana was 12, a lot of trouble. You know, all the expressions of what was happening to her being ignored. And so finally, her mother just told me she wanted her out of the house. She didn't want her. So I got custody of her. And I raised her by myself all through it, you know, with problems and and difficulties. Did you ever have doubts at that time of, like, parents always have doubts about what we want to do or should have done oh, God, or could have yes. done or I mean I have doubts when I order dinner at a restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, you don't know when you are overreacting, when you are being permissive, when you are being too you know, he goes, right. I understand I that. Mean, one of the key things, I remember a, a perfect example. Well I was married at the time that I took custody of Dana. Mm-hmm. And a week later, I wasn't married. She left. Partially, I guess, because she wanted a child and I couldn't see my way clear to having. But at any rate, I was there as a single father. The week before, I had ended my business partnership with Sam after 21 extremely successful years. And I just... I didn't want to be the barrier to prevent him from fighting. I didn't want, I didn't need anybody to be there for me anymore. How old were you at that time? Because that's a lot of change in a short time. I guess I was 40. Wow, that's a lot of change, big change. Oh, it was. Divorce, partnership with your business, shit with your daughter going on, your single dad. Your, oh my. It was really a difficult time. And trying to take care of her, and she felt 
rejected again and, you know, all that stuff. How did you get support during that time? The week of Thanksgiving, which was when we were still a couple, we were hiring a housekeeper, this wonderful, wonderful woman, Luberta Clift, came in. She was everything in the world you could have wanted. When she left the interview, she was going to start on the day before Thanksgiving. And when she finished the interview, she went to her husband, Walter, and said, Walter, I have stepped into heaven. These are the most adorable people. They are the best couple. I am so happy. And then she came in. There was nobody there but me. And and she was this amazing force for all of us. She held us all together. That's really beautiful. She was a big Dodger fan. She was in the Dodger fan club and everything. And one day, her uh, she was taking her grandson back from a pep rally or something, and she missed a turn on the freeway. Her grandson was about 12, and she missed a turn, and one of these Nazi motorcycle truck cops came up totally humiliated her and was trying in a way to provoke her grandson to respond so that he could, you know, take him down. And I found out about this the next day when she came to work was not herself. I said, what's wrong? And she told me the story. She called me, Mr. P, Mr. P, I just don't know that I'll ever be the same. And I had a very powerful lawyer at that time. And I called him up and I said, I don't care what it costs. I don't care what we have to go through. I want her to have a day in court with this cop. And I want him to apologize to her. Not just dismiss the. I want her to, him to apologize to her. And it worked out that he did. And she just blossomed again you know it's amazing the people in our lives that bring support when we need it and how they show up this was personal the love and the respect and the the friendship this woman stayed with i actually for my kids the twins who were young when i moved to new york i kept her as my housekeeper so that they luberta to pick them up from school and spend the afternoon with them or whatever yeah, she, when she passed away, it was a serious problem. I mean, pain, you know. When was that? How long ago? Seven years ago. It was right after Mother's Day. And her daughter, Renee, lived in New York. And we stay in touch. Talk a little bit about where you are now. Well, where, where I am now is uh, largely affected by my physical condition. I've had, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm 88. Four years ago, I was 35. You know how that happens. I do. I was 35 in spirit, in action, in behavior, in everything. Then uh, I had a hip replacement, and it dislocated. And when they were, they you know originally they just pull you out and put it the dislocation as you get it back in the socket. But somehow they got the bone under my sciatic nerve Ouch. and almost tore it in half. So oh. 
I had no use of my right leg. I mean, it was mm. dead. It was, a, but there was enough left that through physical therapy fought back and 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 got about forty five percent back. But it really interfered. I'm very physical, you know, and I'm up and I'm out and I'm doing like. It's seven o'clock in the morning when we were in Shelter Island, where we are now. I would be out in the kayak and I'd go out in the middle of the bay and just close my eyes and go where, I mean, I just loved physical stuff and I really had inability to do that. And then I had, because of the problem with my weakness in that leg, I had back trouble that was manageable, but then it got really bad. So I had two surgeries on my back. Through it all, pressure on my left leg, I just recently had knee replacement. Four weeks after that, I fell and I tore the quad muscle and had another surgery four weeks after that. So a series of surgeries has just been an assault emotionally, in terms of lifestyle, what I can do, I love to cook. I, and, you know, it's like, it's been hard. And even getting past the anger of it, right? there's the reality of it. I just can't get up and I have to ask, you know, and people say, well, you've done so much for, you know, they give you that thing. You're entitled. You're not entitled, you know, <laughs> supposed to take care of you. Well, I mean, it's probably hard. I, I would imagine. Oh, it's that it's depressing and it's frustrating and it's a little embarrassing maybe or humiliating. I mean, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. but All of them work. And I have to tell you, one of the great gifts in this is Mark. He has treated me like royal. I mean, I can't, before I even ask him, you know, and I still hate doing it. I still hate saying to someone, could you get me, you know, And for those that don't know, Mark is Jamie, who is Bill's daughter's husband, who is my lifelong friend who I've known my entire life. So why we're here. Yeah, which is why we're here. Uh, Jamie and Liza, Bill's daughters, I went to elementary school with them. I was in sixth grade with them. I have pictures of us at Carthay Center School. So with all of these changes that go on, how do you find peace or hope? Or well, first of all, uh, twenty-five years ago, I got married to Joanna, mm-hmm. who was the only non-Anastasia woman I'd ever been involved with. She owned a very successful business. She was beautiful, had her own money. She was just great. So I had a peer, you know. Mm-hmm. We had a, we just had a very solid relationship. And then five years ago when I tore my quad, it started to change from my point of view. Right. Because I was no, I mean, I was everything. I, I was the social department. I was, I led everything and she was just happy to do it with me. And that I went, that left, I couldn't, couldn't really do it. And it was very depressing. And uh, it was threatening to her because of how much effort, how much power she felt in the relationship that came from me. She was a great 
partner and contribute. I mean, she, she did the most amazing parties for me. I mean, she just really, I was treated like a king by her and, and she just counted on my strength. And then that started to go away and, and it scared her and it changed relationship. And we, you know, we fought our way through it. And every time you get to a point where it's okay, something else would happen to me. You know, it was like watching Superman be reduced by kryptonite, you know. So I just became a normal person. I could depend on her for anything. But the the ease of it, the, the joyousness was affected because I was not providing a lot, you know, I was, I was uh, terribly depressed and I'm sure I still am, you know, every time I have to say, and it's like with Mark, I just say, Mark, he could, and he's upstairs. What's interesting is that when you talk about the things in your life, you have a super sense of clarity, even if it's not easy, even if it's difficult, I feel you're clear in yourself on. Absolutely. Yeah. I feel it. I can totally feel it. And yeah. even if it's hurt, hurtful or sad or difficult, you're clear. And also I will acknowledge it and not hide from it. So how do you think you get that? Because that's a beautiful, amazing gift that I wish people understood. It's it's not, I mean, most of the time we're afraid we go small or we go distract or we do something else. But the fact that you're clear and you don't hide is such a huge, beautiful blessing. And and uh, my kids are that way. What's something that you are so proud of that when you look through your index file of your moments in your life, the things that you've contributed, the people you've touched, the people who have touched you, what's something that always carries forward? How many people really deeply love me? I was once going into therapy, cognitive thing. And the doctor said, okay, before next week, I want you to write out a list of uh, how many people it would really matter to if you passed away. It's funny because I used to say, how many people do I know who would stop eating if they found out I had died? (laughs) Most people you go and somebody say, you know, Bill Persky died. Bill died Jesus (laughs) you know that but I I got this list and I started out with 50 people and I said well that's not possible and I finally got it down to 30 people and I I said well that's not possible and I got it down to 25 people who absolutely would be affected by my death do you think it's something that we talk about enough in life? Is it part, because it is part of life, but I think it's something that people are always in denial of or afraid of. What, I, yeah. Well, I got to be honest, until recently, I didn't think I was ever. I mean, I thought it was about everybody, everybody else. And, nah, why go through all this trouble? Right. To get here and then die. But uh, what it meant to me all through my life and now is that I never tried to earn it or manipulate it 
It's just the result of what I have been to people. Can you own that? I was just about to say, yeah. it's very hard. Yeah. To, <laughs> you know, and I still keep going over that list, you know. Right. But no, it would, it would really matter. My kids, devastated. I've struggled a lot in life. I've been unhappy a lot in life. I've been depressed a lot in life. But along the way, I've lived a lot of life, had a lot of fun. I created some things that are memorable. Right. Kate and Allie was particularly special to me because I was a single parent. I wanted to write about that. And I wanted to write about relationships, whether you're a man or a woman or two women, two men, whatever it is, it depends on mutual respect, mutual trust, and mutual need. You have to have those ingredients where you don't have a relationship. If you don't trust someone, how can you have a relationship? If you don't respect them, how are you going to have a relationship? And if there isn't a part of you that needs that person, I mean, that's the glue that makes a relationship. So that's why I wanted to do Kate and Allie. And I think maybe of all the shows that it was the most satisfying to me. It was head writer, producer, and director on 100 episodes. And there are only three of them that I don't like. That's amazing. Yeah, I like me. Do you like yourself now? Yeah, I like me. I just wish I were still standing on my two feet, you know, going sailing. I love that you said the thing you're going to look at and most proud of and can acknowledge is that there are people who truly love you which is everything. That I have mattered in their lives. I have made a big difference in their lives. That's huge. And I think a lot of people, like I had asked, can you own that? Many, many of us, <laughs> including myself, you know, that's part of getting closer to yourself is being able to take on or own or receive how you impact other people and that you do yeah. matter. Yeah. yeah. That's a big, big part of the lessons, I think. Another thing I was talking about, Kate and Allie, and of all the awards or everything, there was one letter I got that made it all worthwhile. And it was from a woman who said, I've never written a fan letter, and I don't know if this is, but I am recently divorced. I am single mother. I have no skills, no saleable abilities. And I want to thank Kate and Allie for letting me know that I'm not alone and I'm not crazy. That's beautiful. Of all the things, I mean, what more could you want than for at least one human being to have been given something by something you created? That's beautiful. That's so great. Yeah. Well, I think we are at the point where if there's anything else you would like to add, I'm so grateful for our conversation. No, I'm, I think I've covered just about everything. Again, I just want to say, since Mark is your friend, what a wonderful boy he is. He or is still a boy to me. I mean, I, he, I mean, you know, watched Emergency together. We we played on the playground together. He is a wonderful boy. And me. He really is. And your daughter is lovely. I mean, Jamie's amazing. She's so oh, fun and interesting. Uh, and Jamie, I mean, they're just amazing. 
and strong. All right. Well, my guest today has been Bill Persky, writer, director, producer of many shows, including Dick Dyke, That Girl, and Kate Nally. And I've appreciated our conversation. I have too. I really enjoyed it. It made, I was having a tough day physically. And uh, I thought, oh, geez. But it really, it really energized me. So thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. It's been a real honor. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, share it with someone you think is in need. And if you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review this show on your favorite podcast player. If you have any questions or comments or would like to connect with me about one-on-one midlife coaching or to purchase the book, Me, My Selfie, and I, a midlife conversation about lost identity, grief, and seeing who you are, visit www.janalopez.com. Lastly, if and when you should have a moment of doubt, because we all do, in the middle of the midlife transitions and changes, remember that seeing is relieving. Really